0: Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, we'll be talking about slaveholder religion. Last week, Jonathan and I were in Nashville, Tennessee for the Common Hymnal Writing Retreat. At this retreat, songwriters and artists and worship leaders from around the globe came together to write songs for the church with a social context. Songs about justice, equality, and love. We'll be featuring one of those artists here in this podcast. Our friend Dee Wilson will be sharing one of his songs, Rose Petals. Additionally, Jonathan came out to support the Poor People Campaign's Mobile Course in Theology and Activism in Nashville with Rev. Dr. William Barber, one of the true civil rights luminaries of our time. Dr. Barber and Jonathan had just shared the stage the prior week at the Lynchburg Revival. Jonathan Wilson-Hartgrove is working with Dr. Barber on the Poor People's Campaign and is a leading prophetic voice in a national conversation on the church and race. His provocative new book is called, Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. He sat down with Jonathan last week in Nashville before the campaign to talk about this new book. But before that, please enjoy this song from our friend, D. Wilson.
1: my brother was spilled on the street he was the rose that grew out of the concrete the same ground where his body lay like rose petals on a stony grave why do we fear each other from the lies of yesterday Day I'll never know But look at all these Roses With petals on the ground They call this one Mike Brown I'm asking you To look at all these Roses With petals on the ground They call this one Trayvon Martin I'm asking you Look at all these roses with petals on the ground. They call this one Taishan Lee. I'm asking you to look at all these roses with petals on the ground. It's far too many for me. Bill at his grave she knows the cost the whole world could not repay and when she should have felt our sympathy all we told her is that a baby was guilty and do we even have compassion do we even want to see i'll never know all these roses with petals on the ground. They called this one Freddie Gray. I'm asking you to look at all these roses with petals on the ground. They called this one Aaron on the ground They called this one Sandra Bland I'm asking you to look at all these roses With petals on the ground Every woman Every man Oh Sometimes I wonder If you were more than a number would we ever see how beautiful and special and precious you were? Somebody told me that if only, if only, you would better decide You would still be alive But I'm asking you to look at all these roses With petals on the ground like the ones from Sandy Hook I'm asking you to look at all these roses With petals on the ground As they may change the story In our history books So while we can let's look at all these roses Look at all these roses Look at all these roses on the ground, I'm asking you to look at all these roses. Look at all these roses. Look at all these roses with petals on the ground. I'm asking you to look at all these roses. Look at all these roses, look at all these roses, look at all these roses with petals on the ground. The blood of my brother was spilled on the street. He was the rose that grew out of the concrete.
0: That was our friend D. Wilson and his song, Rose Petals. For more, please go to dwilson.bandcamp.com for more of his music from his album, Black and White Hymnal. Now please enjoy this interview with Jonathan and Jonathan Wilson-Hartgrove on his new book. So when
2: you ask the question like, where did we get this idea that the salvation of souls for their eternal destiny uh, is, is what the gospel is about? Uh, I don't. I don't think it's very theological. I don't sure. think it's like you know somebody sat in a corner and reasoned their way to this. No, people got paid by plantation owners to make this reading of scripture in order to justify a, a, an economic system yeah. that benefited them, and um, that didn't go away. Mm. You know, the Civil War was terrible, and uh, and it it did result in the Thirteenth Amendment. Right, slavery, that kind of slavery at least went away, mm-hmm. but that reading of scripture didn't go away. Mm. The people who read it that way doubled down. They didn't yeah. they didn't say, Oh, you know, they didn't, you know, put on sackcloth and ashes and say, you know, we were we were how could we have been so wrong? Mm-hmm. You know, God help us. I mean, you know, would that they had read uh, you know, the story of Jonah or something in yeah, that sure, context. Like sure. that, that 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 could have been a turning point. Right. But no, these these are the churches out of which the redemption movement grew that, you know, within um 12 years of the end of the Civil War had overturned Reconstruction, right? White supremacy became not only Southern policy but federal policy by, you know, 1896. You have Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but equal. This is, you know, the Supreme Court deciding that white supremacy is written into law. Mm. And and that indelibly shapes the 20th century in America. It shapes our life today. Like the, the world that we're living in is a world that was shaped by Christians who read the Bible as a white supremacist text. Mm.
3: I ask this as a person who, of course, is fully convinced yeah. by your work and by your reading, but I feel like you know, in America in general and, well, also in a, in a white evangelical context, we tend to be kind of ahistorical people. Like, it's yeah. this idea like, you know, we got the New Testament and then somehow there's, there's us, we're here. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's uh, all, all kinds of maneuvers, it seems like, to, for, to not have to you know, put ourselves in any kind of a particular context. I'm curious how, what, is it, what it looks like now when pe- people push back and say, well, of course, of, co- of course slavery is wrong. Or, or, or do you still feel like you're able to kind of build bridges and make the case to people? What do you say when people say, well, yeah, that was, well, that was 100 years ago, but don't want yeah. to make those connections in the same kind of...
2: Well, I think you're right that within the framework that we've been given, it's very hard to think about how history has shaped our understanding right to not read it the way we think it's supposed to be read uh isn't another reading it's you know heresy it's you know it's that's that's kind of the gut level reaction so i was having this conversation with a southern baptist pastor in north carolina where i'm from and uh uh he both wants to be true to the gospel, mm. as he understands it, and he cares about racial reconciliation. Mm. He doesn't want to be a racist, right? So he's grappling with this, trying to figure it out. And his his just uh, knee-jerk response like the first place he goes is to say, uh, this isn't about the gospel, this is about liberalism, right? Because mm. that's what he's been given, yeah. right? So he wants to say, he wants to fall into this conservative liberal framework and say, you know, um, uh, I'm reading the gospel mm-hmm. uh in the orthodox tradition in the reformed tradition i'm reading it the way paul you know saint paul meant it, you mm-hmm. know 2000 years ago and uh this is this is a liberal you know worldly uh, attempt to redefine that you know reconstruct the gospel like how could you how could you question you know what is what is that holy that central to who mm-hmm. we are and uh, i get that i mean i get yeah. that that's like threatening but what I was what I was trying to say to him is that like his gospel has been deeply malformed yeah. he's not preaching the gospel that Paul preached, sure if Paul could sit and listen to that, mm-hmm. I think you know Paul would say anathema yeah. right uh, it's not it's not what John Calvin preached like you can't just say like this is the Reformed tradition right. no this is the this is the particular tradition that grew out of the American experience of justifying. Mm-hmm. The enslavement of human beings, mm-hmm. and if we can agree that that's wrong, and I think most people do now, yeah. then I think as Christians we have to seriously grapple with okay, you know, how did it shape the way we read the Bible? Mm-hmm. So that's what this whole conversation about slaveholder religion is really about. Because I think like slaveholder religion is killing us. Yeah. There's there's no way to imagine what's currently happening in American politics without slaveholder religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I'm learning is how, like, this really stirs up stuff yeah. in folks. And yes. I think, I think that's, a, that's also a revelation about this moment that mm-hmm. we're in, right? I mean, um, I think what we have to be honest about is that the kind of crises that are swirling around us mm-hmm. touch people at the deepest level, right? Sure. And, um, and so, you know, it's why I, I, I want to be real empathetic with folks yeah. who are caught up in this, because I'm caught up in it too, yeah. right? Like, yeah. all of this is, is just normal, right? Mm-hmm. It's so, uh, I spend a good bit of time in the book talking about racial blindness, mm-hmm. right? Like, part of being caught up in race is that, you know, to, to imagine yourself white, mm-hmm. which is supposed to be the good thing within the racial imagination, mm-hmm. right? White is supposed to be right. White is supposed to be good. But to imagine yourself white is, is by definition, to be blind. To the yeah. way it's all working, right? Yeah. It's all it, like, like that's the point, point. Mm-hmm. and that's what has allowed uh, really a, a pretty small group of people to maintain power yeah. within a system that really pits everyone else against one another, and, and especially
3: when whiteness is understood to be culture-free, which I've been thinking a lot about. Like, yeah. whiteness is bland. Like, oh, we're not inculturated. We don't have a culture. Yeah. We're just white, like blank slate. So it's like other people have culture. <laughs> yeah. but we're not enculturated. Like we're not shaped by a
2: particular right. history or a particular story, or which is what whiteness did. Yeah, right. I mean, that is part of the lie of whiteness. Yeah. It creates an identity that is not tied to place, mm. that's not tied to you know a, a particular uh, story yeah. you know, yeah. that, that, that people could uh, yeah grow and develop out of. Uh, you, James Baldwin, at the end of his life, was asking this question. He he he, he would ask. People who thought they were white. What did you give up in order to be white? Mm. Do you even know, right? Like, mm. what does it mean to be German or Irish or whatever? Like on the continent. Like, I don't think most Americans have even thought about that. Yeah. And, and you know, what did we, what did we leave behind in order to have this kind of expansive, placeless notion of whiteness, mm. which is, you know, equated with good and uh, and moral for Christians, right? right? Um, and That by its very definition is uh, uh, centered in pride, mm-hmm. right? Well, mm-hmm. I mean, if you take the Christian tradition in any way seriously, you have to say whether it's you know the worst or among the worst, like pride is bad, sure, <laughs> right? Sure, pride is what you know sends Satan falling like lightning from heaven, yeah, and um, and Whiteness is an identity rooted in pride, mm-hmm. you know, in, the, in the idea that that our people, our race, our, you know uh, our group, as opposed to all those other groups, is the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and however far we might stray from that, you know, to, to, to turn again toward that ideal of the, the good, the end, you know what, mm-hmm. what, what, what we might be, that is what it means to make America great again, Mm to make, you know, humanity great again, whatever, like that's the, that's
3: the idea. -hmm. Um, Uh, Do you find yourself, I'm so curious, because I feel like I, I, just how you're navigating this tension now, because I feel like you've got, you have a message that's, that's prophetic and it's pointed and it's very clear, but I do see in you too, like these kind of pastoral sensitivities, I mean, you talk about the way that you grew up and your own heritage and kind of, you know, just the south and the bible belt and i'm like how do you how do you navigate right now especially like that that line of of being a prophetic voice but also trying to be pastoral insofar like you know wanting to bring people on a journey with you because i feel like i just grapple that every day of my life this sense on the one hand like there's this burning impulse towards the the prophetic critique from the margins you at the same time of course you want to take people with you where you can like yeah how, how are you
2: navigating that right now I believe the culture wars only perpetuate the established power, Mm. right? That's the liberal versus conservative, you know, which uh, Reverend Barber always says, you know, why in the world do you buy liberal versus conservative, left versus right? Where did that come from? It comes from the French Revolution. What Mm -hmm. in the world does that have to do with... Like the current reality, mm. uh, and, and and he says further, why would you call something right which you think is wrong? Mm. <laughs> so you know, there's there is this sort of like um, uh, kind of third dimension of power, quite, mm. like right, like who set up the categories? Yeah. Who, who, yeah. who 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 decided that this is how we're gonna think about things? And and frankly, my uh, my depth of feeling for folks caught up in that is that. I really do know and love people on sort of you know the spectrum mm-hmm. that exists, and uh, and I believe that the spectrum was created to uh, keep people separated. Mm-hmm. And that's that's my reading of American history. Yes. Bacon's Rebellion mm-hmm. scared the bejesus Jesus out of you know the colonial establishment in Virginia because mm-hmm. here we're I'm not not that it was in any way a pure movement or anything, but here were, sure. here were poor people who weren't divided by race, ready to rise up against this, you know, fairly small group of people that were establishing this thing that became the plantation economy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they immediately recognized, we've got to pit these people against one another. Mm-hmm. And race, race was the way they did it in, Virgin, in the Virginia colony, and then in the South, and then in the American story. Ra- race was the way of separating out the poor people who within this democratic experiment yeah. were always the potential threat to the oligarchy mm. right because there's this pre- you know we were going to pretend mm. that all people are created equal and that everyone has voice in this society and you know I think everybody knew that wasn't the case in the beginning, but yeah. there was this idea that the, you know, there has been this idea that we've been sort of progressively moving towards that. You know. mm-hmm. Women got the vote, and then African Americans got the vote, and this idea that like you know, one person, one vote is is at least the ideal of America. Well, I think that's the that's the crisis we're facing in this third Reconstruction, right? Yeah. Because everybody knows, you know, twenty forty, white people are going to be one among many minorities in this country, Sure. and what that means is you either have to deal with a with the reality of a multi-ethnic democracy, yeah. or you gotta say this project isn't gonna work. Yeah, And I think that's, that's what's got the whole country in upheaval. Right, yeah.
3: speaking to that upheaval, I mean I was so, you know, I think you're so right in terms of digging the roots of how we got to where we are, do you feel like right now the, it does seem like there's so many things that are, they're just very above ground right now, like think, you know, um, racism that's not implicit, it's explicit. I feel like yeah. at least in some circles I'm in, hearing things right now, like, oh, you know, not that it's better to conceal sin, but I don't know if we—if somebody would feel like they could yeah. say that in the public square 10 years ago. This
2: is, this, this is our history, right? Racism always becomes explicit when it's challenged. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, when is mm-hmm. the last time we saw the Klan, you know, or we saw people without hoods out yeah. on camera talking to people about, you know, their white pride? Yeah. during the civil rights movement, mm, right right when black power was obviously in the streets you mm-hmm. know and, and 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 not just marching but actually you know challenging the structures of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. challenging uh, you know the the, the the exclusion from the ballot box, mm-hmm. uh, that's the last time we saw this mm-hmm. and we're seeing it right now because there is the potential of a multi-ethnic fusion coalition in this mm-hmm. country that would not vote with. The old white power structure. It's not about Obama. Sure. Too many white people liked Obama. Mm -hmm. It's about the group of people that elected Obama. Mm. That Obama's election tore the Southern strategy up. Mm. He won Virginia, North Carolina, Florida the first time. Yeah. These folks thought they had that locked up, Mm -hmm. right? After Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, Strom Thurmond brought all the Dixiecrats into the Republican Party. They said, "We've got the South. Mm. You got the South. You got." You know, 26 Senate seats. Mm. How many more do you need to control the thing? Like you've got this, you've got this base locked down, right? Mm. And that's uh, that, that's what this, you know, this last nine, ten years has been about. Mm. It's been about the incredible backlash to the coalition that elected Barack Obama yeah. in 2008. Because because you see, here's the thing about whiteness in America. Anybody can be white. Mm. Barack Obama could be white, as long as he kicked Jeremiah right to the curb. That's what happened in the election, right? As long as as long as that prophetic black church tradition that was going to say, no, actually, you know, racism matters in terms of, as long as he distanced himself from that, right? As long as he never got angry in public. That's that's the, the incredible performance of the Obama presidency yeah. is that this man existed just as a human being for eight years and never got angry in public. Right, that, was yeah. the, that was the compromise, yeah. you know? black man being willing to always be slow and polite and methodical in public. Mm. The country was okay with that. Right. His popularity is still at like sixty five percent. So you can't say that you can't say this is all about Obama. Yeah. You know, people like the guy. No, this was about the potential of poor white people, black people, Latino folks mm. voting together. That's why voter suppression is the Crucial issue right now, right? Yes. Twenty-three states have passed voter suppression. I was talking to a guy on Christian radio about this the other day, and he said, "He said, but but who who says it's voter suppression?" I said, "Well, the Roberts Court called it voter suppression, right? Yeah. We challenged it in North Carolina mm-hmm. for seven years mm-hmm. before it finally got to the Supreme Court. We laid it all out in court, and the most you know conservative court that." conservatives could want right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess they hope they get one or two more seats. But anyway, like it's it's about as for a conservative, the court is about as good as it gets right now. Sure, right? sure. The Roberts Court said that the kind of voter suppression that happened in North Carolina in the law that was passed in 2013 was intentional racism. Mm. Right? Like that why isn't that front page news? Yeah, right? I don't get it. I don't like, get it. We're talking about Stormy Daniels right. and you know and evangelicals are arguing about whether, you know, you can support a guy who's obviously, you know, never figured out how to be a good family man, at least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, uh, that, that, you know, I'm not saying those things don't matter, but in sure. terms of public life, right? in terms of like what's actually happening in the country, I feel like this is a great con game going on. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of distractions. Oh, absolutely. A lot of tweets that send us off in other directions. Yes. Wh- while 23 states in this country, are intentionally suppressing a voting coalition yeah. that could transform this democracy into something it's never been. Yeah. That's that's significant. Yeah, I went on CNN Certainly. just before the election last year, mm. and uh, we hadn't gotten the decision from the Roberts Court, but we already had the federal court decision that the court upheld uh, at that time. And this 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 federal court in Virginia had said uh, that this law that was passed in our county in 2013 had targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. That was their language. Mm. And again, Roberts. this was the Roberts Court upheld. And so, um, uh, like we were about to have an election that everybody agreed was consequential, right? So I'm on there with the uh, woman they had on from the kind of conservative perspective was mm. uh, the woman who had run Ted uh, Cruz's campaign okay. until, I can't remember her name, she was a Secretary of State in the Midwest somewhere. But she had been his campaign manager, and uh, and uh, I brought up voter suppression. I said, like, this is critical. Like, in a country that says it's a democracy right now, people are trying to suppress the vote, and uh, and she said, oh, absolutely, we have to have free and fair elections, and then moved on. Mm-hmm. I said, but but the courts are saying we don't, right? Yeah. Like like this is what's happening, and and I think wow. you know we had a, we had a presidential election where the person who's president right now you know got 3 million less votes nationwide yeah. uh, had to be you know installed by an electoral college that's deeply rooted in the racial history of this country mm-hmm. I mean, if you know the electoral college sure. is all about those southern slaveholding states you know feeling like they could join the union by being guaranteed this protection mm-hmm. um so you you know If you're leaning that heavily on the racist pieces of, you know, the common life and the only thing that's getting you in there is the fact that millions of votes are being suppressed by Mm -hmm. uh, state level work and that there you know, and that there's an incredibly well funded group of people in this country that understand that and have been very intentional about it. And, you know, they created ALEC, this... State-based legislature coalition that pushes these bills out, you know, to, mm-hmm. to everybody. Um, all of that, I think, should be deeply disturbing to like anybody who cares about justice in public life. Yeah. But uh, but you know, a lot of people are willing to say, well, of course we care about free and fair elections, and move on as if it's not happening. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think, and I think that's like I, I think this kind of lip service we pay to our ideals mm-hmm. in American life. Uh, while ignoring the fact that they're just being blatantly disregarded is uh, is a huge piece of the reality of really. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I know. We need to wrap
3: up. I'm just because it does feel like such an apoc, really an apocalyptic time, especially around apocalyptic. Race. That's a good I mean, word. So we'll just it's you know, revealing. So many things being revealed. <laughs> you're like, mm-hmm. what's your sense? Because you, you know, I I so believe in what you guys are doing on the ground. I'm such a supporter. Like, is it, I'm curious if right now if because things are so tense and there are a lot of things that have been in darkness out in the light, is, is the sense right now on the ground more of like, does it feel more like a frightening moment, or historically, or does it feel more like a hopeful moment in terms of what, what, what space is being carved out now? Or does it, does it feel like things are, you know, what's kind of that,
2: I mean, clearly it's a, it's a well, crucial it's a, moment. It's a dangerous moment, right? But the folks in South Africa who struggle against apartheid, they used to say, only a dying mule kicks the hardest, mm. right? So when a mule is dying, you know you can get hurt, be careful, right? Like this, mm. this thing is going to kick as hard as it can kick. But, but I think it's also a hopeful moment, right? Mm. Especially, you know, if that jackass has caused a lot of problem for a lot of people, like, like it is dying. Yeah. It can't go on in this form. Yeah. And so there's the potential for some uh, a very new thing to happen in this land. And wherever we've been, you know, organizing for this movement, I think there's a lot of energy around that, mm-hmm. uh, and so the community building and the local power that's that's growing out of that, I find incredibly encouraging, and gives me a great deal of hope for uh, the future. I mean, America is never going to be perfect, sure. right? I'm, I'm not talking about some kind of Pollyanna optimism, but but I think we we did have Reconstruction in this country, right? There was black-white fusion politics that reconstructed state governments in the 1860s, late 1860s. Uh, We did have a civil rights movement, and it did change some of the structures of this country. And I I think in this third reconstruction that we're living through right now, there is the potential for uh, some real change to the structures of our public life Mm -hmm. that could not only make life better for people here, but uh, given our role in global politics right now, could, uh, for example, uh, make a significant difference in... Uh, the fight against climate change yeah sure we 're talking about literally lands that are going underwater mm. around the world in the you know, course of our lifetimes and certainly in our children's lifetimes yeah. and uh, and, and, I, and I think it means the studies are really
3: so crucial. Well, I'm I'm just so thankful for your witness and for your voice and you're surely doing God's work and just just so believing you. Thank you so much for the time, my friend. Oh, my it's so brother good to get it's to do good this. To be with you. Really awesome. We got to
2: press on we say forward together, not one step back. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. And
3: thank you so good.
2: Oh, this is a great conversation.
0: I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to JonathanMartinWords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.